Does that sound good to you? I mean, how many of you sometimes wake up and you're just nervous for no reason? Or how many of you are stressed out about things and you don't know why you're so stressed out about them? Or maybe sometimes you lay there at bed and you just don't feel at peace. Or sometimes you're hanging out with your friends but, and maybe you're kind of happy but you don't feel that inner joy. Does anybody relate with that sometimes? God doesn't want us to live a life full of anxiety. He doesn't want us to live a life full of this high amount of stress. He wants us to actually have perfect peace. He wants us to have perfect joy. A joy that's not based upon our circumstances. You know, oftentimes we think of joy and happiness as the same thing. We think of them as things that are really based upon our circumstances. If I finally could make this much money, I would be content. Right? Have you ever thought that and then you made a little more money and then you're still not happy? Right? You can read quote after quote with some of the richest people in the world and they go, it it doesn't complete me. It doesn't doesn't bring me the true joy that I thought it would. Or maybe if I had that relationship with that person, like if I could just date that girl, if I could just date that guy, like my life would be complete. But then you get in a relationship with somebody and you find out, you know what, they're kind of imperfect. They're a whole lot of imperfect. And they don't satisfy you completely either. They don't bring you the full joy, the full peace that you thought they would. Because they're going to fail you, they're going to hurt you, they're going to say things that might cause you pain. And so if you're looking for true joy and true peace in, in finances, if you're looking for it in relationships, if you're even looking for it in like, if I finally get to my goals, you know what? It's only going to be very temporary. But what we're talking about is, is this joy and peace that God gives that is not based upon our circumstances in this world. It's not based upon it. And it's not dependent upon our circumstances in this world. Because it actually comes from out of this world. And as we go through this book of Philippians, the the Secret to Bliss is a study of the book of Philippians, we're going to be learning from Paul the secret to this peace and joy that is surpassing all of our circumstances, this eternal divine peace and joy that God has for our lives and that we can learn to live in. Does that sound good? Now, the theme verse comes out of Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and read that. The theme verse for this series is, I know how to be brought low and I know how to, be, uh, to, how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. You know, a lot of times we read that last part, we read the part that says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, and we apply it to like a football game, right? Come on team, we can do all things through Him who strengthens us, right? We apply it to that. But he says that I've learned to be content. I've learned the secret of being content in hunger and in abundance, in plenty and in abundance. When I have nothing and when I have everything, I've learned the secret to being content because I have one who strengthens me, one who completes me, one who satisfies me. That's Jesus and his spirit that dwells in us. And so we will, through this series, learn from the author Paul on how we can be content in all circumstances with a true inner peace and inner joy that only God can bring, and nothing in this world can compare to it. Now today we're going to be going through the first part of chapter 1. But first, I'd like to just talk a little bit about the history of this church. How many of you know who Paul is? Some of you do, some of you don't. Paul was actually opposing the church. 
After Jesus came to earth, he lived this perfect life. He, he died on a cross. He was uh, buried. He rose again. And then he, he commissions his disciples to go out there and really make disciples throughout the whole world. And, and then Jesus ascends to heaven, right? And maybe for some of you, you're like, that sounds crazy. We'll, we'll talk about that some more later at the end of this message. But just listen for a moment. So as they do that, um, the, the church starts growing. It starts spreading. It starts catching fire. And people are getting saved by the thousands. And there's this guy named... Saul, and his name gets changed to Paul later on, we call him Paul today, but his name is Saul, and he, he's like this high up Jew, he, he, he's like got all of this renown, he's known as this um, great teacher of the law, and he is opposed to the church. He thinks what they're doing is blasphemous to God, and he's angry at them, and he starts persecuting the church. He leaves really this um, full out um, attack against the church where they're imprisoning them and even killing them. And Paul was kind of behind this and kind of even leading the charge in this. And then one day, he's on the road to do some more of his dirty work. And, and Jesus confronts him with a bright light and says, Paul, why are you, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And from that moment on, when he meets Jesus, when he sees him, when he's blown away by the presence of the Savior of the world, he changes from the inside out. Something changes in him, and instead of persecuting the church, Paul then becomes the greatest missionary the church has probably ever known. He goes from trying to kill them, shut them up, stomp them out, to growing the church and taking it to places that it had never been before. Isn't that amazing? Here's the cool thing about Paul as we're reading this letter. How many of you have killed a Christian? Hopefully none of us. If so, you might have something to confess. I don't know. <laughs> right? How many of you have been so opposed to the gospel, so opposed to Christianity, that you were willing to kill people for it? Because you hated it so much. Well then, if Paul's not too far gone and he was murdering Christians, none of us are too far gone from the forgiveness of God also. None of us are too far gone from His grace and His mercy and His love for us as, as God's children. He wants us to repent and turn to Him and have relationship with Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Creator and Sustainer of the universe, the Bible teaches. So it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you did last night. It doesn't matter what you're going to do tomorrow. You see, there is no amount of sin that makes you too far gone for God to redeem you. But it all starts with us meeting Jesus personally. And so, Paul in this book is going to really talk about the secret to joy, the secret to peace, but it's all dependent upon that person that Paul met on the road to Damascus. The person and, and the Savior, Jesus Christ, who lived this, on this earth and died on the cross and rose again for the forgiveness and salvation of our souls. It's all about Him. That's where the peace comes from. That's where the joy comes from. It isn't necessarily inner peace that comes from you. You're not going to go digging around in your own soul and find this peace and this joy. It comes from the Savior. It comes from Him. So as we go through this book, we'll be learning from a man who was, by many of us, probably considered too far gone, if we, if we could be the judge. But God said, nope, I'm going to do a work in his life, and he changed him. So Paul, he starts planting churches all, all over the world. He starts taking them to Asia, and then to Philippi. Philippi was the first church planted in Europe. 
It's pretty cool. The city of Philippi was a colony of the Roman Empire. Now, Rome at this time, when this was written and and when the church was planted, Rome was kind of really in charge of the whole world. They had um, a dominance over really what then was known as the whole world. And they um, had an area where if you lived there and you were born there, you'd be considered citizens. And Philippi was actually outside of that area, so generally people weren't considered citizens there. But Philippi had all these retired Roman officers. It's kind of like a retirement, like, all right, I'm done being a Roman officer, I'm going to go retire in Philippi. It's a really nice trade port, it's really beautiful there. And a lot of them would trade there, so they made Philippi this uh, little colony where they could also be citizens. Not just people that they um, had uh, taken over their area, but these people were actually citizens. And so Paul takes the gospel there in Acts, and we're going to look next week a little bit more into the actual planting of the church at Philippi. Um, but this week I'm just giving you a kind of a general gist of some of the things that happened. But um, as we go through this book, it's important for us to know that he's going to talk about some of our identity, our citizenship, and some of these things. And it's all playing into things that the church in Philippi would have known would have been familiar with. Even here in this first verse, um, we're going to look at verse 1 and 2. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, he not- notice he says a couple things here. And in, in the English, it doesn't necessarily always translate the way that it's um, meant to in the original language. But he says, Paul and Timothy. So Timothy is helping him write this letter. I don't know if Timothy was just maybe writing for Paul as he spoke or if they both had input in this letter. It's not clear there. But he says servants of Jesus Christ. But listen, that word servants is actually the idea of bond servant. It meant more of a slave by choice. Not your typical idea of a servant, and not quite your typical idea of a slave. They're actually calling themselves like slaves of Christ. In Rome, there was ten slaves for every one citizen. So slavery was rampant. It was everywhere. Everybody had slaves. And Paul says, hey, like, he was a citizen of Rome. But he's saying, hey, I'm not like a citizen here with serving Jesus. He calls himself this slave of Jesus. Why does he do that? Well, in Rome, the idea of slavery was that it's your property, right? You have slaves, you have ten of them maybe, they're yours. You, they're like almost like animals, you can do whatever you want with them. But the Israelites had a different idea of slavery. In the Bible, it says that when you owed a lot of money to someone, you could put yourself up as a slave for seven years to pay off your debt. So as a way you say, oh, you know what, I owe you so much money, I'm never going to be able to pay it back. I will put myself up as a slave for seven years. And for seven years, I'll work for you, and then we'll, we'll cancel this debt. So it was actually a, a very common thing that people would do. Now, at the end of the seven years, what would happen, and this is going to sound crazy in, in our society, but listen, in, what would happen sometimes is that they realized that life was actually so much better with this master than it was before. They actually enjoyed serving and even being the slave of this master so much. Life was so much better with them. Maybe these people are really rich and life was just so much better there than it was outside of it. And when they get out, they're not going to have anything. So what they would do at the end of the seven years is they would say, Hey, I'm going to devote the rest of my life to you, actually. I'm going to be a slave to you for the rest of my life, actually. And the symbol that they would do is that they would put their earlobe against a door, um, a doorpost. 
and they put a nail through your earlobe like that and hammer it through. And that was a sign saying that you are really becoming a bond slave by choice. Now, maybe that seems gruesome. Maybe to our culture, you're like, this is weird. You know what? I didn't, know, I didn't expect to talk about slavery at church. Get to the gospel, bro. <laughs> the idea here is he's saying, I'm a bond servant of Christ. I have chosen, me and Timothy, we have chosen to give everything to him. He didn't force us to serve him. We chose to completely give 100% of our lives to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, in America, we don't like the idea of of submission, of obedience, of discipline, of discipleship. A lot of times we're like, hey, don't tell me what to do. I'm independent. (laughs) I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. Don't you dare tell me what to do. And then we get to the gospel where the Bible's always talking about submitting and, and surrendering your whole life. And we're like, I never surrender. Right? That was my motto in business. That was my motto on the football team. Never surrender. Never give up. And so our society, we're so full of this idea of never surrender. Never give up. Never submit. And then we get to the gospel and it's like, surrender. Submit. Give your life over. Your entire life over. You serve Him. But if you're free will, God's not going to force you to do it. God will not force you to serve Him. But what you'll find, and what they found, is that when you give Jesus a chance, when you you give His commandments a chance, you actually find out that it's the best possible life. That you have joy and peace surpassing. And isn't that fitting? Because He is the creator and sustainer of life. So if He's like, hey, this this is how life should be lived. And we go, no, I don't know. Are you sure? Didn't he create life? He created life. So he knows how it's best lived. And when we surrender our lives to him, we're actually what we're receiving is the best possible life. His guiding and his leading is always better than our decision making and our efforts. But when we surrender to him, so right off um, the bat here, he's saying that they surrendered fully to Christ. And then notice, You have two identities. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus and at Philippi. That's interesting because the people in Philippi, compared to the surrounding areas, would have been very proud of their citizenship because the surrounding areas didn't have it. But he says, no, no, no. You're in Christ Jesus first. And you know what? We got this whole presidential election happening right now. I don't know if you're for Trump, if you're for Hillary, you're for Gary Johnson, or you just wish all three would shut up and go away and... Obama would stay in or something. I don't know what you're wishing, okay? But you know what? It's a messy election. Who cares? That's not our citizenship. Our citizenship, first and foremost, is in Jesus Christ, if you believe the gospel. That's our kingdom. That's our nation. That's our citizenship. And it's secondarily where we live. So Paul identifies that. And he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of times, you know, we read these letters. And they all say the very similar things at the beginning. We just kind of kind of just scroll past it, don't even think about it, but just think, grace to you, and peace from God, I can't think of a better way to greet somebody, grace to you, and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ, amen, let's continue here, verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy, because your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, 
He says, I'm thanking God for my remembrance of you. You can tell in this letter he really loves this church at Philippi. He doesn't really have any strong rebuke towards them. He doesn't really say there's a bunch of doctrine that they're off on. He just really encourages them. He continues to encourage them. He says, I'm so thankful for you guys, this church. Through church history, we know that like Philippi had supported Paul in his ministries at least five times given to him financially. And they were, even though it was a rich city, the church in Philippi was a very poor church. They were very poor, and yet they continually were giving money to Paul. And so he just has this fondness for this church. He loves them. He's thanking God for them. Every time he prays, he's thanking for them, and they bring him joy when he thinks about them. Do you ever have friends that you just miss, and when you think about them, they just bring you some joy? Man, those were some good times. I really love those people. Paul's feeling that way about these people. And then verse 5, it said, Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Some, some translations may say fellowship there instead of partnership. The word is actually in the Greek koinonia. Um, oftentimes that um, is used to mean fellowship. But in that language, koinonia had a very specific type of fellowship that it included. It didn't just mean, hey, we're friends, we're buddies. It actually, and that's why I like the ESV's translation for partnership, because it, it really identifies something that fellowship, the word fellowship doesn't, is that it actually had the idea of friends who invested in something together. So let's say you were like, you know what, this is like a good business opportunity. You get some of your buddies and you all put some money and you pitch in and you, you go in together to invest in this business. That would be koinonia. In a friendship where you invest in the same thing. And so here he's saying, we're all investing in the gospel. We're partnering in the gospel. We are coming in and we're investing in the same thing together. Isn't that pretty cool? And we're investing our lives. We invest our time as a church, as a a body, as Austin Chapel. We're going to all invest together in God's kingdom. We're going to partner together in the gospel. Verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ, um, or Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. You know, I love this verse. I'm sure of this, he says, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. You know, a lot of times, as believers, we go, Thank you, Jesus, for saving me. Thank you for saving me. Now I'm going to go serve you in my own strength. I'm going to go do it on my own. I'm going to make you proud. But we don't. We continue in Him. He completes it. He completes the work. He does the work in our lives. And we have to remember that. It's all about the work that Jesus does. It's all about the work that He does. From beginning to end, He's the one doing the work in our lives. And we don't get any credit there. We just simply submit and follow Him. He says that, that they were partakers with me of grace, even in my imprisonment. I love the phrase there, partakers of grace. You know, you think of partaking. We don't use that word a whole lot. Hey, let's partake of this uh, P. Terry's together. But that kind of has the idea of consuming something together, partaking and that's what we do with grace. We partake of it. He, it's this free gift of God. Ephesians 2 says it's a free gift of God. He just gives it freely. And we just take it and we partake of it. Amen? Isn't that awesome? He says, you guys are partaking of grace with me. And he says, we're pay- I'm partaking of grace 
the same grace that you guys are, even though I'm in prison. He was in house arrest at this point. Which is interesting, right? Paul, through his church planning endeavors, ends up getting arrested. And, and Paul keeps appealing to Caesar. We'll read more of this next week in Acts. But he appeals to Caesar. And he wants to, as a Roman citizen, be tried in the highest court possible. And he's been waiting and waiting. And so when he's writing this letter to Philippi, he doesn't know if he's ever going to see them again. But he's thinking fondly of them. And he's sitting in house, he's sitting in house arrest. And he's saying, I'm just taking the same grace that you are. You know, that seeker of, I know how to be thankful and, and have peace and be content in nothing. And when I have everything. And he meant that when he's writing it from house arrest, not knowing whether or not he was going to live. He may actually get... Um, executed. We find out later on, not too long after this, he, end up, he does end up getting executed. Right? And he says, I'm still partaking of, partaking of grace. Even in my lowest moments, God's, God's giving me and I'm taking it. And I'm finding true joy. I'm, trying, I'm finding true peace that doesn't come from this world, that is not about this world, but comes from God. Verse uh, 8, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. That'll finish up how far we're going to read today, but look here, he says, God is my witness, I I yearn for you, we're seeing clues here of real community where we really love each other, really want to give ourselves to each other and say, look, I'm here for you, friend. I'm here for you. What do you need? I hope that's the kind of hearts that we have here at Austin Chapel. Amen? That we say, hey, I yearn for you. What do you need? How can I help you? I want to be there for you. Let's not have a church where we all come saying, hey, help me, help me, help me. But we come all saying, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I pray for you? How can I love you? And you know what happens? The cool thing is when everybody comes to give, everybody receives. But when everybody comes to receive, no one, um, no one receives. Sorry. Yes. When everybody gives, everyone receives. When everyone comes to receive, no one gets anything. My wife's laughing at me, at my inability to say long sentences. <laughs> Somehow I became a preacher. He says that he prays for their love to abound more and more. He says you're loving, like you love each other, but love more. Love more. Sometimes we go, all right, I was nice to everybody at community group. This weekend's about me. If they text me with any of their problems, I'm ignoring this text, (laughs) right? But he says, no, abound in love more and more and more. But then he says also in knowledge and discernment. Sometimes we only want to abound in one or the other. Right? You have some, maybe you have some friends who are like, man, they're always talking about love. Like, shut up. You need to learn the Bible too. Okay. <laughs> and then you have others that are like, you got to learn this theology. And you're like, man, you don't love anybody. <laughs> right? You have both sides. Some people are abounding in knowledge and discernment, and others are abounding in love. And he says, no, I want you to abound more and more in both because they help each other and they complement each other. And they're not against each other. So our knowledge, our discernment, that comes from the Lord, comes from Scripture, comes from studying, and then the love that we have that comes from the Spirit living in us to love one another more and more. He wants us to abound in all these things. 
And what that does is when love is abounding, love for God, love for each other, when, when knowledge is abounding, knowledge from the scriptures that God gave us, what happens is, he says that you start approving what is excellent. You start approving what is excellent, and you be pure and blameless to the day of Christ, filled up with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul does want us to start repenting of sin. Sin is a real thing in this world. It's a real thing in all of our lives. It's a real problem in all of our lives, isn't it? We're supposed to be repenting of it, turning from it, casting it aside, going to Christ. And we abound more and more in love and in knowledge and in discernment, and that helps us grow to be more impure, more blameless, more righteous. But listen, he said, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes from you, comes from your good works. No, I'm reading it wrong says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. The message that I want to share today is that we are partakers of grace, not just at the moment that you receive salvation, but through your entire life, every day. The righteousness, the blameness, the pureness, the repentance, it all is through Him. It all comes through His strength, His grace. And we continue, we must continue to partake of the grace that He has for us. We must. Because we can't do it on our own. You know, I've quoted this verse a few times, probably recently, but, you know, in Galatians, Paul's writing a letter, and it's a funny thing, I'll just give you a little fun fact about that. In the Greek, he basically writes in all caps. What, what do you do when you get a test message that's in all caps? You kind of get scared, right? You're like, like, you just open, you haven't read it yet, and you're like, oh, caps, they must be mad at me. What did I do? <laughs> right? Or they're just capitalizing all the angry words, right? Paul writes this whole letter in basically what would be in English, all caps, yelling at them. But he gets to this one point, and he says, oh, Galatians, like, who has bewitched you that you think that what begun in the Spirit, you will now complete in the flesh? Partakers of grace. Church, can we please be a church that continues to partake of grace. Not just the day that we receive salvation, but every day after, until the end of our lives, when He returns or we die. Just living in His grace, His power. Can we please stop trying to do everything in our strength? I'm preaching to myself too. You know how many times the Lord has just had to slap me and say, Stephen, you're trying to plant this church on your own strength. Stop. Trust me. Pray. Pray instead of stressing. Have faith instead of planning. So many times. You know this launch, like the Lord, like pretty much every day is like, shut up, Stephen. Pray. Stop, stop worrying about it. Pray. I am so humbled like, that you guys are here. So excited that you're here. But you weren't here because I did a good job. I don't believe that at all. I believe that we're all here because God led you here today. And, you know, in everything we do, whether it's church planning, serving at church, whether it's fighting against sin in our lives, it has to be done by the strength and the grace that He gives freely every day for you. And if you're feeling weak, you're feeling beat down, you don't have to muscle up, try harder, do better. Go to the one who gives strength, who gives grace, who gives mercy, who gives you the strength to move forward. Go to Him. Draw near to Him. You know, as we're in this series, 
And this series is about peace and joy that God can give us. About the peace, the true bliss that we can have through our Lord and Savior. There is a lie that we all tend to believe. Maybe you have believed it, maybe you are believing it today. And it's the lie that Satan has been telling ever since Satan tempted Adam and Eve. In the beginning, God created all things and he said it was good. Right? He created everything and it was good. There was no sin. There was, no, there was nothing bad. It was all good. He called it good. He created man and woman. He said it was good. And then Satan, who's a fallen angel, who rebelled against God, he comes to earth and he tempts Adam and Eve to eat of this one tree that God put in the Garden of Eden. He said, don't eat of that tree. Don't eat of that tree. And Satan's lie to Eve and to Adam was basically this. God's holding out on you. There's more out there. There's better things out there than the relationship that you are experiencing with God right now. The lie of Satan that brought sin into this world when they ate of that fruit, they believed the lie of Satan that God was holding out on them. That if they ate of the fruit, they could be like God. Which is a lie. And sin entered this world, and ever since then, This world has been broken. And I don't need to tell you that. You've experienced pain in your life. You've experienced sin in your life. The sins that you commit and the sins that people have committed against you, you know that it's real. Every one of us sitting in this room here today know that sin is real. We've felt the the effect of it in our lives. We've seen the pain that it causes. Read the news. I ended up having to delete my news apps because I couldn't handle it anymore. You know, another earthquake here. Someone, a kid missing here. You find out a kid was murdered or something. You can't, like, you read four or five of those a day from your news apps. It really starts to wear you down, doesn't it? Because sin is real. Pain is real. And that came into this world because Satan lied and said, hey, everything he created that was good, no, no, no. He's holding out on you. There's things that are better. But that only brought brokenness into that world. And it only brings brokenness into your life right now when you believe the lie that God is holding out on you. He is the creator and the sustainer of everything, of the universe, of all creation. And more than that, he's the creator and he's the sustainer of life. And he knows what is good. And he knows how life is best lived. And everything that is in scripture, maybe there are things in scripture that seriously confuse you. Maybe even the part where I was like, I'm talking about some fruit and some angel who disobeyed God, you're like, that sounds weird. You don't have to understand all of it. You don't have to understand every part of it. 